Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I'm doing a lot of work around the house, and I've been listening to a bunch of audiobooks in the process. It definitely helps pass the time when putting up drywall or crown molding, and I learn a little in the process. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me at all. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of this episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks. And whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 80 of History of the Marine Corps, Banana Wars, Haiti, part one. Our last episode concluded with the intervention in the Dominican Republic. Just a quick correction regarding last week's episode. I said Marines saw a total of seven deaths in the Dominican Republic. That number should be 17. The mistake slipped past editing, and I wanted to make sure you had the real numbers. This week's episode heads next door to Haiti. We explore why the United States got involved in the first place. We also discuss Medley Butler's reconnaissance mission that gathered the intelligence for Waller's aggressive campaign. And we conclude the episode by looking at a heroic mission by two Marines that sounds a lot like it should be in a movie. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. A year before the United States sent troops to Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic, Marines were in Haiti, dealing with a similar mission. The Haitian government was bankrupt, and rebels used this opportunity to start a revolution. Early in 1915, Jean Vilbrome Guillaume Sam overthrew the current government and would become the president of Haiti. But Sam's reign was short-lived, and another revolution began almost immediately after he took office on March 4th. As the revolution grew, President Sam fled for the French legation, but before he did, he ordered General Oscar to kill the 167 political prisoners. After the general massacred every one of them, he fled. He was captured and killed by a mob on July 27th. And the next day, another mob captured President Sam, and they ripped him to pieces. This isn't hyperbole. The mob literally paraded parts of the former president's body throughout town. Haiti was without a government and the mob were the ones making the rules now. Shortly after the president of Haiti was killed, the United States sent Marines to prevent anarchy. In reality, the main reason U.S. troops were sent to Haiti was to protect U.S. assets at risk from the revolution. The United States was also worried about German troops invading Haiti and establishing a base in the Western Hemisphere. On the same day the president was killed, Marine Captain George Van Orden landed two battalions of troops. 
One battalion was made up of three companies of sailors, while the second consisted of two companies of marines. By midnight, U.S. forces had embedded themselves in vital positions throughout Port-au-Prince. The next day, the 24th Company of Marines out of Guantanamo Bay showed up. Five more companies of Marines, under Colonel Cole, were sent from Philadelphia on the USS Connecticut. They arrived six days later. With all of these Marines present, the State Department put more effort into restoring order in the country. But they soon realized there weren't enough troops to support their mission. So another brigade of Marines was sent to Haiti under Colonel Littleton Waller. Despite the large number of Marines in country, the revolutionaries continued to march towards the capital. The first real battle between the U.S. and Haitian rebels occurred on July 30th, and two U.S. sailors and many Haitians were killed. Rear Admiral Caperton wanted a more forceful plan in place to restore peace. He dispatched a group of sailors and Marines to control Fort Nationale and ordered all Haitians who did not live at Port-au-Prince back to their hometowns. Haitians didn't like that idea. They resisted, which ended up in a dispute between the Haitians and Marines. Two Haitians were killed during the fight. Caperton also positioned the USS Castine and the USS Eagle alongside the wharf to support the Marines from sea. Some of the ship's crew would also land and join the troops. The biggest resistance to the U.S. came from Kakos, slaves who had escaped and were now living in the mountains. Their name came from the patches of red fabric worn by the rebels. There was a bird on the island with red patches of feathers, and the troops were nicknamed after that bird. They were professional soldiers and gladly supported the revolution for a fee. They would become one of the main focuses for the United States and Haiti. When the Marines from the 1st Brigade arrived on August 15th, Waller took command of all forces on land. He sent Colonel Cole with the headquarters and 1st Brigade of the 1st Regiment to Cap Haitian, and the rest of the brigade was garrisoned at Port-au-Prince. Three days later, the tasks for the Marines would grow substantially, and the Department of State ordered them to take over the custom houses and use the money to establish the police force. The 19th Company occupied Port-au-Pay on the 25th. The 12th Company occupied Petit Gove and moray Goan. The 7th Company occupied Gonaïve. The 4th Company would be sent to Kays. And the 17th Company would be sent to Jackmall. A three-battery battalion of artillery landed at the end of August, and one battery was sent to Cap Haitian, while the other two stayed at Port-au-Prince. By September 1915, the 1st Brigade had a total strength of 88 officers and 1,941 enlisted. The Marines started to see more action from the Cacos. On September 18th, a Marine patrol engaged with 75 of them. Major Smedley Butler was assigned to that detail a few days later, and he immediately planned an aggressive campaign against the Cacos, a strategy Butler was famous for. He re-established the water and food supply, got the railroad up and running again, and restored communications. Towards the end of September, Cacos started to ramp up their activity in the north. The Marines responded to a disturbance at Petite Riviere, and half of a company of mounted Marines were sent to take care of the problem. 
When the Marines showed up, a quick fight took place. Sergeant John Platt was killed in this engagement, making him the first Marine to die in combat in Haiti. After Colonel Waller heard the news, he decided to take care of the situation personally. He collected Haitian funds and attempted to pay off CACO leaders if they agreed to lay down their arms and stop harassing the country. He met with their chiefs and reached an agreement, stating that they would give up their weapons and break up their groups by October 5th. The CACOs turned in a few hundred rifles, but most rebels dispersed and did not fulfill their end of the bargain. In response, Waller took the 11th Company of Marines and headed to Fort Liberté on the Nashville. When he arrived, the Marines immediately started to march towards Wanaminth, an area of the Dominican border and the home for most of Haiti's revolutions. 400 Haitian troops lived there, but they weren't in any type of shape to put up a fight. Their arsenal was limited to bladed weapons and small arms. They didn't have uniforms, most barely had clothes, and all of them were starving. When the Marines showed up, they didn't put up a fight, and many of them were glad to give up their weapons for food, clothes, a little bit of money, and a ride back home. Waller left a company of Marines at Wanaminth and headed back to Cap Haitian. But despite Waller's success, there were still cackles who were resisting. The remaining rebels were out of luck, and their time for turning in their weapons without punishment was over. The Marines now had the responsibility of tracking down the remaining weapons. For this mission to be successful, Waller created two operations. The first would be a reconnaissance mission to assess the threat. The second, once intelligence was collected, would be an intensive attack on their camps. To prepare for the attack, the Marines were positioned in known CACO locations. The 13th Company was sent to Grand Riviere, the 15th Company was sent to Fort Liberté, and the 11th Company stayed in Wanaminth. A detachment of Marines from the 13th Company, led by Lieutenant Thomas Thrasher, advanced deep into CACO territory. He managed to take the commune of Bahone, and once secured, the rest of the 13th Company moved to his location. Cole also moved his headquarters to Grand Riviere. Smedley Butler was attached to his unit and headed there as well. Butler, a few other officers, and about 40 enlisted started on their six-day reconnaissance of an area around 120 miles in heavily populated, mountainous Caco territory. On October 24th, the recon team ran into 400 Cacos. They were surrounded on three sides and started to take fire. Butler describes the event, quote, One horse killed, fought our way forward to good positions and remained there for the night surrounded by cackos who kept up continuous but poorly aimed fire. We returned fire only when necessary to repel their actual advance towards us. Owing to our good position, no men or horses injured during the night. At daybreak, Three squads in charge of Captain Upshur, Lieutenant Osterman, and Sergeant Daly, which had been covering our positions during the night, advanced in three different directions, surprising and chasing cackles in all directions. Eight cackles killed and ten wounded, this number verified. Many more reported. Private Frederick's slight flesh wound left arm. 
Upshur and Osterman advancing from two directions, captured Fort Dipity, with a total of 13 Marines putting garrison to flight. Demolished and burned fort. All three squads burned all houses from which fire had been coming. Swept clear the district within one mile of all Kakos. Unquote. Captain William Upshur, First Lieutenant Edward Osterman, and Gunnery Sergeant Dan Daly were awarded the Medal of Honor for their action. The information gathered by these Marines provided the intelligence needed to plan the second phase of the attack. By the end of the month, Waller began his campaign. He headed towards Latrue and established a new headquarters. When the Marines arrived, Kakos launched an attack, and after about 20 minutes of fighting, Marines killed 32 of them, and the remaining bandits fled. Only one Marine was injured during that fight. Patrols of Marines advanced deeper into Kako territory, and they destroyed any forts or troops who resisted. Although most Kakos fled, Marines still had daily fights, resulting in many bandits being killed. Eventually, the remaining Kakos were driven to their last line of defense, Fort Riviere, located about 8 miles south of the Grand Riviere. Their sanctuary was an old French fort which they believed was indestructible. Detachments of Marines continued to advance on the fort slowly. As they made their way, they cut off all retreat paths and collected information to help with their final assault. On November 17th, multiple Marine detachments surrounded the fort and attacked. The 13th Company attacked from the east. The Marines from the USS Connecticut protected the 13th's left flank and focused on the south side of the fort. And the 15th Company, which included Smedley Butler, attacked from the west. The 15th also had the task of entering the fort, but their path was limited to an opening that would only allow one Marine to pass at a time. Sailors from the Connecticut would also join in on the fight, and they were assigned to a trail heading north to prevent any fleeing bandits from escaping. At 0730, Smedley Butler whistled, which was the signal to advance. The Marines' attack was fast and intense. The Cackles were taken by complete surprise, and many of them tried to escape by climbing over the walls, but automatic rifle fire stopped their retreat. The 15th Company reached the opening, and Sergeant Ross Eams and Private Samuel Gross volunteered to be the first Marines to enter the fort. The remaining Marines lined up nut to butt, as we say in the Corps, and closely followed. The fighting escalated to hand to hand, and everything from bayonets to rocks were used in the fighting. Marines fought until every Kako was eliminated. When the dust settled, more than 50 were killed, including some of their more notorious leaders. The Marines only faced a few scratches. One Marine lost a few teeth when he was hit in the mouth with a rock. Sergeant Eams and Private Gross were awarded the Medal of Honor for being the first Marines to enter the fort. Smedley Butler would also earn his second Medal of Honor during this engagement. When the battle was over, Butler called for a ton of dynamite and demolished the fort. Without their last line of defense, the resistance started to fade. But despite the success of the Marines and the recognition given to them with three Medals of Honor, there were still criticisms about their strategy. The Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, 
thought the attack was too violent, and he stated that further operations would be accomplished with less bloodshed. However, this battle was the last in Waller's campaign, so the Marines were able to accomplish their mission before the new requirements were released. Peace was slowly established in Haiti. The Brigade of Marines was reduced to 100 officers and 1,667 enlisted by the end of 1915. Marines were still garrisoned in 14 locations, and the sizes of these detachments varied greatly. The largest was Port-au-Prince with close to 600 Marines, while Limonade had 33. The presence of the Marines didn't deter the bandits, and they still attacked. There were six attacks alone in December 1915, but due to the overwhelming loss by Waller's campaign, the attacks were usually small skirmishes, resulting in some deaths for the Kakos, but none for the Marines. A few months into the new year, bandits were essentially non-existent. With the situation under control in Haiti, Marines began to recall troops and send them to other conflicts throughout the globe. Trouble started in the Dominican Republic, and many of the Marines traveled to Santo Domingo. We discussed this intervention during the last two episodes. By October, less than 1,000 Marines remained. When World War I started, three companies of Marines were withdrawn from Haiti and were sent to help the 5th Marines in France. The generations of fighting in Haiti left the country in a pretty bad shape and the U.S. proposed a gendarmerie force to help establish order. This force would serve as military and law enforcement for the country, and they were positioned in 12 sections. Each section contained 28 men. They were dressed in Marine Corps uniforms and given whatever supplies were available. Smedley Butler was assigned as the first regular chief of the gendarmerie. The new guard force assumed responsibility for all 109 departments in Haiti, some of which were located in Kako territory. Even though the number of bandits were significantly reduced, small factions still existed. For over 100 years they controlled parts of the country, and they interpreted the gendarmerie's presence as an invasion. Attacks periodically broke out, resulting in a few deaths each time. On May 30, 1916, 500 prisoners in the National Penitentiary at Port-au-Prince rushed the guard force and escaped. Marines had to round up or kill any prisoners. Nine gendarmes were court-martialed for cowardice and desertion for their action that day. Similar to the Dominican Republic, the United States invested a lot of money into Haiti. By 1930, over 1,000 miles of roads were constructed a public health system was established, public sanitation was provided, and irrigation projects were started. Public school was also improved. All was well for a couple of years. As an attempt to keep up with the amount of work going on, Haiti, with the help from the United States, started to take advantage of the Corvée system. The system used forced labors instead of taxes to get work done and many Haitians were brought in to support the new plan. Lower-class residents were taken from their homes and forced to work on roads for weeks at a time. Involuntary work naturally led the Haitians to hate the Marines and the gendarmes. Soon, their favorable opinion of the two forces started to turn, 
and they saw them as oppressors. The Corvée system had unintended consequences, and the benefits of free labor soon turned into another rebellion. In June 1918, multiple outbreaks happened in Jacquemont. Marine Colonel Williams was the chief of the Gendarmerie, and he ordered the corvée stopped, but the wheels were already in motion. Corrupt politicians, who no longer had a job, jumped on this opportunity and used it to start another insurrection. Charlemagne Peralt was a caco chief. He organized a small force, and after that, the rebellion just snowballed. The strength of his army increased, and soon they were committing violent acts in northern Haiti. Their attacks caused many of the locals to flee, abandoning their farms and property for safer refuge. The exodus resulted in a food shortage in Haiti. Charlemagne is estimated to have impacted one-fifth of the entire Haitian population. In October 1918, he launched multiple attacks against the Gendarmerie. By March, the resistance grew too large, and the country requested help from the Marines. On March 25th, four companies of Marines were sent from Guantanamo Bay to Haiti for help. The Marines were dispersed to four locations, and detachments in these areas were broken down further to support smaller nearby towns. Marine Sergeant Maskoff was the first Marine killed during this new campaign. He led a detachment of Haitians against the Cacos. He was severely injured during the battle and died of his wounds. His Haitian detachment honorably fought off the Cacos and after their victory, carried the Marine's body back with them to camp. In another engagement, Major John Mayer was killed while patrolling on April 4th. The Marines faced 500 Cacos. However, Mayer's successor fled and the Cacos bragged about being victorious over the Marines. From July to September, over 80 engagements took place against the Cacos. The frequent attacks brought a lot of chaos to Marines and the Gendarmes. Their poor communication resulted in a lot of confusion. As a result, it was common for both forces to fire at each other. Many Marines and Gendarmes were killed by friendly fire. Similar to the Dominican Republic, poor policy by the U.S. government and frequent deployment of Marines, many of whom came from the front lines in World War I, caused a significant drop in morale. But during this time came one of the most heroic feats in Marine Corps history. Sergeant Herman Hanneken started to come up with the plan to kill Charlemagne. Hanneken had one of his gendarmes go undercover and join the Cacos as a secretary. He also had a Haitian civilian join who became a general over a group of Cacos. Both of these men earned the trust of Charlemagne and other senior leaders of the rebels. The undercover general was placed in charge of a camp, and Hanneken would periodically lead attacks on that camp to avoid suspicion from the rest of the Kakos. Working with his two undercover resources, Hanneke convinced Charlemagne to attack the town of Grand Riviere. The undercover agent suggested a place for Charlemagne to wait for the news of the battle. Hanneken and Corporal William Button, along with 20 gendarmes, disguised themselves as cacos. The two white marines didn't exactly fit in, so on top of wearing civilian clothes, they also painted their face as an attempt to hide their race. It worked, 
and the undercover group made their way towards Charlemagne, passing many cackles along the way. Their plan was to impersonate a victory by bringing a few U.S. items as proof. The secretary informed Charlemagne that a detachment was near with news of a victory, and the leader ordered the messengers to him. When the secretary brought the news to Hanukkah, he also stated that there were six outposts the Marines would have to cross before reaching Charlemagne. It sounds like something out of an Indiana Jones movie. The Marines had to face six challenges before reaching the boss. They pushed on without hesitation. The first outpost was excited about the news, and they let the detachment pass without question. They were able to cross the second post with the secret password. The third and fourth outpost was passed relatively easily, but a few comments between gendarmes and the Kakos gave Hanukkah a little concern. During the fifth outpost, one of the Kakos pulled his pistol on Hanukkah. The Marine pretended he was exhausted and managed to stagger past him, but the guard grabbed Corporal Button. Now I would have thought that his painted face would have given away his identity, but the guard was more curious about his weapon. He asked him where he got the nice-looking rifle from. Button gave him some answer, and the Marines were able to make their way to the final post. 250 guards were protecting Charlemagne. When Honekin reached the final post, the secretary pointed out Charlemagne to him. He was standing next to a fire 40 feet away. Charlemagne started to sense something was wrong, and his guards began to pick up their weapons. The time to attack was now and Hanukkah shot Charlemagne while Button open-fired on the guards. The Marines and the gendarmes stayed in the camp throughout the night, fighting off cackles during the process. In the morning, he carried the rebel leader's body back to the Grand Riviere to confirm he had killed the real chief and not a decoy. Multiple bandits attacked him on the way, but Hanukkah arrived at Grand Riviere at 9 in the morning. Both Marines were awarded the Medal of Honor for their bravery. Shortly after this heroic mission, Button died from malaria. Hanukkah would eventually become a Brigadier General and leave the Marine Corps in 1948. With Charlemagne dead, the Marine Corps began a massive reorganization in the country. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll finish our discussion on Haiti. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is I'm Staying With My Boys, The Heroic Life of Sergeant John Bassalone by Jim Prosser and Jerry Cutler. My daughter's a hockey player, and we had the first two games of the season this weekend. Any hockey parents listening will understand my pain. At least once a week, we have to travel a couple of hours to a game, and I usually force the kids to listen to a podcast or a book during the trip. When I started to play this audiobook, it was met with a lot of groans and whining, just like every other book I play for them. But as we got into the story, the kids loved it. My middle son was fascinated with his life growing up. He's 10 and is a freaking handful, and hearing Barcelona's childhood was like listening to someone tell his story. There are parts of this book that I wouldn't consider kid-friendly, so be careful with that. But the book goes into the life of Barcelona from growing up in a small town in New Jersey, his time in the army, his boxing career, and up to fighting in Iwo Jima. It's a great read.
Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.